0: Hi, I'm Graham Barrett and welcome to Marketing Futures, a series of the C-Suite podcast that we're producing in partnership with SAP. We're continuing to address the latest trends and issues in retail and marketing. And at the moment, it's hard to avoid one word, crisis. From climate to currency, from energy to cost of living, we're living in deeply unpredictable times. What does this mean for brand strategy and customer engagement? How can marketing leaders continue to be effective whilst managing with smaller budgets? These are just some of the questions that today's panel will address. And to that end, I'm delighted to introduce Doug Zarkin, CMO at Pearl Vision. Connor Wells, Head of Marketing and Brand at Heath Skincare. And Carl Schroeder, VP Global Partnerships at Movable Inc. Welcome to you all. Carl, maybe I can start with you to maybe set the scene for today's conversation. At Movable Inc., you've recently released uh, this ebook, The Value of Customer Centricity During Economic Downturn. Maybe you could share with us some of the key themes of that ebook.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks, Graham. And, and welcome to Connor and Doug as well. Excited to be here for our conversation. Yeah, as mentioned, we we recently here at Movable Inc. Uh, published a bit of an ebook for marketers on how to navigate the times that we're in. And as you mentioned, crisis is really kind of top of mind for so many folks. And when you think about the just economic uncertainty we're in, it's a reality for marketers and for individuals as they work with and engage with their favorite brands. And so one of the key themes that came out of our research was this idea that you know, each person does experience the moment that we're in differently. And really at the heart of personalization is the ability to tailor messages and customize the way you speak to your audience to the realities of the experience that they're having. And so while you know brands are being tasked with doing more with less, driving greater ROI than they have been in the past, you have customers that some of which are reconsidering buying decisions Thinking about loyalty a little bit different than they may have before. And that's really kind of altered the way in which those engagements come together. And so the playbook was all around, how do you still do customer-centric marketing in a world where um, there is a lot of uncertainty? Because I think the goal for most brands is to help provide some stability or certainty in the engagement with that brand because so much is uncertain for that individual customer. And by doing so, you kind of build that trust, that loyalty, and can establish that lifelong customer relationship that you're looking for.
0: Yeah, sure. And I'm sure we'll, I've I've had a read through that ebook. It's fascinating stuff. And I'm sure we'll pick up on some more of the themes throughout this conversation. Doug, if I could come to you now, what, what are your thoughts on marketing during economic tough times? And I'd love to hear more about your thinking human theory and strategy. Sure.
2: So, you know, the natural tendency when you have an economic crisis or you're underperforming sales forecasts. Is to go nuclear and to forget the fact that at the end of the day, your consumer is not a series of data points on, a, on an Excel chart, but they're actually human beings. And so the notion of thinking human really grounds marketers in the belief system that the how is equally as important to the what. So are you shoving deals and discounts in a consumer's face that may allow you to make the quarter, but what that's going to really do is alienate your consumer down the road. For us at Pearl Vision, it's really quite simple. And I use that that phrase simple in quotes because the complexity of our market really is in the simplicity, which is we are providing a medical service that results in an amazing fashion function element, which is that perfect pair of prescription eyewear. But the reason to believe and the reason to take action has to be grounded in reinforcing to a consumer that we're here to care for them. That really, at the end of the day, it's about ensuring that your eyes are healthy and that you're seeing clearly. And for consumer targets like kids, where 80% of what a child learns is through their eyes, we're letting parents know that in the scope of their life, with all the things that they're balancing, have they remembered the importance of ensuring that their children are seeing clearly? If the answer is yes, great. If the answer is no, then that's where we really want you to take action. So just a really good example of reinforcing in the most difficult of times that you've really got to be human centric in how you're talking to consumers, not just what vehicles you're using to reach them.
0: Sure. And you feel that's even more important during the times that we're going through at the moment, do you?
2: Look, you have a culture of immediate gratification when it comes to retail purchases for almost any product and service. If you want to seek to compete and create a long-term, lifelong value proposition with a consumer, you have to take a moment to pause, to think before you do, to listen in order to lead. And for us, sure, we could go out with a buy one, get one free message like we used to do 25 years ago, And yes, that might enable us to make sales numbers for today. But all that does is kick the can down the road because a year from now, we're going to have to comp up against it. So we'd much rather pause, be a little bit smarter, a little bit more authentic, and just simply remind consumers of the need that exists and hopefully prompt them to take the action we want when we want them to take it.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. And Connor, if I could come to you now, because you worked for L'Oreal for six years before taking on this role at Heath Skincare. So you've kind of seen both sides of the coin, as it were. So a really big brand like L'Oreal and a slightly smaller one in Heath Skincare. So you've already had to adjust to to different marketing budgets. How do you go about that? And how do you ensure that you're still effective?
3: First of all, I think it's quite important to get some context on Heath. We're a startup brand. We started in 2017. As you say, Graham, I came from L'Oreal where things were significantly different. Right now, in the process of really building this kind of brand territory that we own. And I think, honestly, a lot of it comes down to, um, uh, you know, what we've just heard about. I think we look at things from a startup now very similarly to kind of this thinking human, but almost in a different approach. Because ultimately, I'm a firm believer in the kind of ethos that, you know, we have at Heath is that consumers are buying very much more, well, emotionally now. So it's our job to kind of reach them on an emotional level. And I think one of the fundamental differences, which makes it easier to work with slightly smaller budgets, is that we don't necessarily have to operate like a big giant. I think that there is a huge, profound focus now on agility, particularly with with marketing. Marketing moves at a pace. You know, one minute you're looking at ways to kind of take on board more third-party data, then you see the decentralization of data and you have to start getting first-party yourself and it moves at such a pace. It's really important for you to make those split decisions. I think one of the biggest changes between larger and smaller brands within a marketing budget, it's much easier to pull kind of 10 percent out of a larger kind of TV spend than 50 percent of it. Purely because, you know, when you're a much bigger company, you fall into a trap of kind of doing what you've done last year, but kind of altering it slightly. I think when you're in a, a smaller business, a startup, and you see these changes and you see new ways of reaching to consumers in an emotional way you very much are the pioneers of trying that you can quickly optimize, you can quickly change. And if someone tells me now that I'm paying X amount of money on a TV ad, which is absolutely returning me nothing, I will switch it off and I'll never do it again. Because ultimately, you know, that's kind of the mindset that you have in a startup. And I honestly think that this is a reason for a lot of the success that you actually see in in a slightly smaller business, because it allows you to activate and funnel your budget into advocacy plans. It allows you to activate your budget, and we'll talk more about it, I'm sure, later on, into you know, more aggressive loyalty schemes, which we, we heard earlier on from, I think, Kyle. And that's really, really important because that is how you reach a consumer emotionally. And that, I think, is kind of how you build a brand
0: today. Just to pick up some of the points there that the Conan was making, Doug, if I could just turn to you now and bring you back into the conversation and your thoughts on building communities and targeting specific demographics and consumer bases. You were telling me last time about a particular Hispanic campaign you had. So I'd love for you to share that with us, if you don't mind.
2: Sure. You know, in order to compete, you really have a couple different options in order to win, one of which is to think differently. Another one is to think think smarter. And for us at Pearl Vision, we try to combine the first one and the second one. And the U.S. Hispanic effort that we launched in a real meaningful way this year, I think, is a great example. It was really driven based on a need state. Forty percent of U.S. Hispanic children, as an example, versus 25 percent of general market have an undiagnosed vision issue. And that is frightening. Sixty percent of vision acuity issues in the Hispanic community go undiagnosed. And it's because the Hispanic population is genetically predisposed to having vision acuity issues. Ironically, even though there are about 20 million searches in Spanish on Google for eye care or eyewear related items, there wasn't a single brand that was really rising to the top consistently. And so in 2018, we began to dip our toe in the water and got a little bit deeper in the deep end in 19 and were prepared to launch it in a major way in 20, put that on hold. And this year, what we have done is a full funnel effort to really embrace the US Hispanic community including but not limiting to identifying on every one of our eye care center uh, websites, locations that have bilingual associates. While most folks are, are bilingual, we wanna make sure that for, especially the older US Hispanic consumer, they may be more comfortable communicating in Spanish. And so we've gone to that degree to ensure that we're not only recognizing by presenting them a message of care when they need it, but also ensuring that when they actually are motivated to take the action, They know that they have the comfort of being able to speak in the language of their preference uh, at one of our eye care centers that can provide them service. The results have been fantastic. You know, in a meaningful way, about one out of three exams placed online right now is coming from the U.S. Hispanic community. And we think that our efforts in 23 are going to take it to new levels.
0: Wow, that is incredible stuff. Yeah, as you were saying, that because they are genetically disposed to it, I mean, that's such important work that you're doing to actually reach these people and to ensure that those problems can be addressed. Absolutely. Carl, just to, to bring you back in here, I mean, what we're kind of talking about here is personalization, really, isn't it? And it's been mentioned before in this conversation today. How do you go about helping your partners with this?
1: Yeah, I mean, so at Movable Inc., I mean, we're we're a software company. We provide technology that allows marketers to do content personalization. And so when I hear Doug speaking about, you know, the campaign and and efforts that um, are underway on his end, you know, this is all rooted in data, right? I mean, marketers have piles and piles of data, and the more ability to leverage that data effectively... Really helps accomplish some of these things. And I think we, we believe at a Movable link, you can still have a human-centric approach that brings empathy and a, an understanding of those customers into your marketing programs. And so yeah, we we think about it from a content standpoint. The really the sweet spot where this all comes together is the ability to scale what you're doing. So it's one thing to build a single, you know, personalized campaign and, and send it out. It's much harder to do that consistently, you know, time over time to deliver that experience, where then clients can come to trust those brands on the, the experiences they're going to have. And so this Really, this kind of intersection of data and and technology allows that program to scale personalization effectively, and so we see that every day. Um, you know, many of the brands out there are you know trying to find new ways to unlock the value from their data to have that personal story, personal connection with their individual customers.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know if anyone else wants to come in on that point, Connor. What are your thoughts on personalization uh, in terms of, of the brand you're at at the moment?
3: To be honest, personalization absolutely crucial. I work in FMCG, obviously we work in and male skincare. And all of the opportunities that we had to be able to do that, I know it's a bit different when you're a software business. Um, you absolutely jump on just finished reading the 2022 kind of retail market reports. And it's just absolutely jam packed with wellness and personalization and experience post pandemic, which of course you strive for. I kind of want to touch back on the community aspect, because what I find really interesting, actually, kind of within the base that we're in at the moment, when it's a little bit difficult for brands, whether it's whether there's th- their investment or disposable incomes slightly lower, I, I just find it really, really interesting. I don't know necessarily if it's because I've just come away from a bigger business. But it's just the basics. It's back to the basics. With things like a community, that is your fundamental basics. And we spoke earlier on about the emotional aspects of brand buying now and how that's really important. We have you know, huge brands. When I was on L'Oreal Paris, we built this incredible purpose brand campaign about female empowerment, and it was authentic. Some brands don't do it as authentically others do. I think when you can really crack that authenticity, and we, we heard about it earlier on within the kind of Hispanic community, if you're doing activations like that, that are really authentic, You are just fueling your brand. And then you have the opportunity to leverage that community at your hands. You have an authentic way to reach out to them, talk to them as a brand. And I think that's the basics. That's what brand builders have been doing for so long. If you're smart about it, you can build the basics in a slightly less expensive way. High-touch way that you speak to your consumers is one of them, reaching out to them individually and review generation. Little things like this, which are absolutely crucial in building a brand, in my opinion.
1: Connor, I would just add, I think we're definitely seeing that like in crisis, going back to the basics is the way forward, right? Make sure you have your foundation in order because that'll allow you to do so much more. I was also curious just on your comment on authenticity. How do you make sure as you think about putting your strategies together that you don't over orchestrate that, that it truly is genuine authenticity, that you're not kind of forcing something that's not natural for your customers?
3: Yeah, I agree. Um, Look, first of all, I think that I'm in a better position because I've been building the Heath brand since its conception. And I'm a huge believer in insight. You know, I mean, the amount of times I walked into huge multinational ad agencies who would just come to something and and give you something which is absolutely so irrelevant to what people actually are demanding and wanting. I can't even count the times on my hands that's happened. But I think that, you know, staying relevant to the insight, finding that, but also following through with it. I'll give you a great example, actually. So I used to work on the brand Men Expert for L'Oreal Paris. It was at a time when L'Oreal Men Expert was a big subsidiary of L'Oreal Paris and it was at a time when we had this new CEO at L'Oreal and it was this huge huge importance on purpose so this narrative around the brand that you build and you know we were building this whole kind of territory around mental health because we knew it was really important we were a men's brand and there was a huge narrative to have and initially it wasn't authentic because you weren't following through on anything you had no really strong ties to brands eventually we realized that we had to partner with a charity fund and become absolutely fully integrated as a partner with them that's a little bit of an extreme example At Heath, our territory is all about daily protection for the urban man. That's through two elements. So it's obviously the protective element for skin within your ingredients. And then it's also reframing skincare as a wellness moment. We know that there is a huge insight and huge opportunity coming out of the pandemic that men need more time to switch off, take time for themselves. And we're like, hang on a minute. There's a really easy, simple switch here. Have a face care routine in the morning. Take a moment for yourself, rebalance in the chaos that is your day generally. And yeah, I think that's quite. And then in parallel to that, we have thought leaders on the brands who are sound healing specialists. Um, it trickles into the ambassadors we have, the advocacy plan that we kind of carry out and execute. And um, it comes down to all of the copy on the brand, what CSR initiatives we're looking at in the future. And I think the products that we innovate, loads of different areas. So well, I think it's just seamlessly integrating it really into, into kind of everything. That's your question.
1: Yeah, I love it. I I appreciate the, it's not just a campaign. It's integrated into the core mission of the company, the values, and all the way through the way you think about the program. So it makes a lot of sense.
0: That's authenticity. Yeah, absolutely. And listen, we'll come back to something you said about ambassadors and the influence you use in a second, but Doug... Let's bring you back into the conversation here, because what I was interested in from the eye care business is you don't get to see your customers as much, do you? Obviously, you come for a checkup, maybe a year, 18 months. So how do you you keep that connection going with your customers during that period?
2: Our customer relationship management platform is critical. You know, beyond the sale It is really about maintaining a strong connection, whether that is reminding them that they can come in and get their eyewear adjusted on a monthly basis, much like you would take your car in for breaks and oil change. We do free cleanings, which again is a service that we provide. But I think most importantly, it's providing them with ongoing information, whether that's about seasonal allergies, whether that's about dry eye, and then obviously there's an enticement to come in for an incremental pair, but it's being very choiceful. You know, it's very much in the analogy of a tennis match. I'm a tennis player, it's one of my passions. In tennis, not every shot you hit is a winner. You've got to set your opponent up so that you can win the point. And that's what CRM really does. It allows us to rally with the consumer, at the same time getting them set up for when we want to win the point. And winning the point is either having them come back in for an annual eye exam, come in for an incremental pair, or importantly, thinking about eye care for somebody that they love and bringing them in, which is really part and parcel to our win the family strategy, which is about focusing on our target, but hopefully using them as an ambassador to embrace us as a one-stop solution for their entire family's eyewear and eye care needs.
1: Yeah, I love the analogy, Doug, and not every campaign is, is necessarily the one that you're going to hit the grand slam on. You know, you need the continual kind of heartbeat of what's going on with those customers to then be able to have those points of inflection. I guess I'm, I'm curious, you know, you talked about just the, the how critical CRM is in your program. How, how do you think about making sure that you have kind of an accurate, robust and, and up-to-date database in order to do as much as you would like to throughout your program? You know, the
2: privacy laws really take care of that for us. You know, we we have to ask for an additional layer of opt-in. We have to maintain separate databases for our patient files and then our retail side files. But it's really up to the most important tool that any marketer has in their arsenal, which is their frontline associates, to ensure that during the the engagement process with a patient from the exam room to the retail floor, that we're collecting information. And that information is collected based on a real reason to believe. And the reason to believe is either an update on where their order is, or most importantly, staying in touch with us so that your eye care is something that is top of mind to you, much like it's top of mind to us.
1: No, I love it. I think yeah, you have that unique experience with those frontline workers to be able to connect that experience. I think as long as you, know, you kind of hold true to your customers and how you're using the data and, and providing them with stuff that's relevant and engaging, as you were alluding to, it really creates that customer experience you're going for.
2: If you don't, they opt out. It's very simple. Right. And if they do more than opt out. Then they start to complain and post those complaints on Twitter and Facebook. So, you know, in any system, in this today's day and age, if you're not doing a great job, they're going to let you know pretty loud and proud. For sure.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. What I'd like to get on into, into in a second is content creation and uh, engaging creative. I think, Carl, you call it. Just before I do that, Connor, yeah, I'd just like to pick up on that point you made about ambassadors. So I'd be really keen to hear about how you use influencers and the strategy behind that.
3: Well, I think first and foremost, kind of being a bit of a pre-Heath L'Oreal baby And you guys will know because you see these big brands and how much money they put into ambassadorship. I was always a huge believer of that, to be honest, when I first came onto the brand. But again, kind of back to my point I made at the beginning, I think when you're a slightly smaller brand, you have the ability to kind of be agile and say, well, actually, we don't need one great, amazing ambassador right now. It's about having, you know, proximity on the ground of the country that you're operating in. It's about doing on a very small level across a very, with a very mass approach. And that today is called advocacy. So I think, you know, at Heath, um, we've got, you know, huge, huge advocacy plans. We've got dedicated teams looking after kind of, you know, lots and lots of influencers across an array of different levels. You know, we have people with millions of followers at the top and they're kind of our tier ones. And we have a lot more kind of like those micro influencers who all kind of hammer the same message in. And I think on that point, of course, yes, they advocate for the brand and they're the right people to advocate for the brand. And again, back to kind of, you know, Carl's point earlier on that's authenticity because it's seamlessly integrated across all of our different channels have um, reached a consumer but at the same time it serves lots and lots of other purposes as well as i said earlier on it costs less than having a huge kind of above the line approach to tv and, and billboard advertising Two, its high touch you reach consumers directly within their kind of safe space which is sometimes social media could be you know kind of within another vehicle vehicle of media but finally it's a content driver Hopefully, I speak for Doug and Kyle when I say that any business today, if you've got anything that resembles an e-commerce platform, or, you know, even even if you're just back to kind of standard brick and mortar retailer, it can go both ends of the spectrum. Um, Content is absolutely the heart of the business. Finding ways to bring to life engaging, exciting content, it's really, really easy to do that when you have an influencer and an advocacy plan, because... They're churning it out for you. And you can really use that. And also, not only is it content, which is native, usually, to most social media platforms so you can use, it's ready to go. These people know what they're doing. They're building it to reach consumers, and you can use it, and you have the same benefit.
2: Oh, good. There gets to be a point of disagreement on this conversation. You know, $250,000 for somebody to do a 50-word tweet or a 30-second video. I find the influencer marketplace is going to be reset in 2023. There is going to be a massive amount of regulation. You just saw it last night. Kim Kardashian, speaking of influencers, was fined $1.6 million because she promoted a cryptocurrency where people lost their shirt. And even though she wrote hashtag ad, didn't disclose that she was an investor. I think influencers have been taking advantage of brands for the last three or four years, ever since the FCC rules changed and you had to disclose that something was a influencer, it was a sponsored post. I wish it would go away. The reason why I wish it would go away is because brands have turned over their power to people that are paid for players. Frankly, it drives me a little bit nuts to have to take the brand guidelines that this team has worked so hard to curate and hand them over to somebody and cross your fingers that they can maintain their brand while promoting ours. I get it. For a lot of brands, especially in in fashion, it's a necessary evil, but I am really excited to see this market get a little bit more regulated. And start to really regain the value proposition of where this fits into your mix. I think it belongs somewhere. I just don't think it belongs where it is today. Just my personal opinion.
3: Interesting. Yeah, no, no. Hon- honestly, Doug, like, like, trust me, if I had a pound or or, or $1.5 for that matter, I'm, I, I would be a rich man if, if I had a pound for every time I have this conversation.
2: It's 1.2. I'm going to London tomorrow. I'm leaving. It's 1.2. 1.
3: 1.2. 1. Oh, but There's a big difference between influencers and an advocacy plan because the majority of what we do at Heath and the way that we adopt our advocacy plan is purely organic. Trust me I I do a lot kind of within the web three space that's just absolutely swarmed with kind of influencers and everything who are like obsessed with driving value into their own pockets. I completely understand that and I think that that's something that needs to change and that is something that bigger brands are throwing cash at and I see the annoyance on their part because it's frustrating for me I'm trying to build an authentic business model and not throw tens of thousands of pounds or dollars to these influencers but I just can't do that that's not part of our strategy because back to what I said before it's about building something which is organic and authentic I'm not going to go to someone who you know doesn't represent the brand and say here you go here's 50,000 pounds right promote our product and let's have a great black friday that would be an absolute disaster for my
2: brand. No, but I mean, what what you're basically saying to kind of sum it up is you're using it for good, not for evil. You're doing it in a controlled way. You're maintaining the brand's authenticity. And those are all critical things. You're the exception to the rule, not the rule. The rule, unfortunately, is that people will hand these influencers a variety of different levels of stature, a ton of money and say, figure out how to connect with your followers. And that's the way they position themselves when they try to sell themselves to brands. As a marketer, I'd love more discipline. In the discipline, and and there are a lot of companies out there that are getting better at it, but it is a it's a painful conversation when you try to do it as a one off. It certainly is. You desperately need a strategy.
3: Hundred percent. Really, really quickly, I'll finish with one thing. Um, if you look at the majority of our influencers from an organic level, you know the majority of them are Team Great Britain athletes with two thousand followers. They are. Local barbers who have a successful, you know, following because they have great customers. This is what I mean by organic influence, and what that allows us to do is have that high-touch relationship with their communities. And because of that, they become part of our community in an authentic way.
2: No, I I, I applaud you for it. I'm I'm excited. I'm not familiar with your product, so I'm excited to kind of see it when I'm over there. I'm sure you guys will be. I'm sure my phone is listening, and I'll be getting a whole bunch of retargeted ads on uh, on Insta and a bunch of the other platforms because of it.
3: Doug, when you're over here, drop me an address and I'll give you the whole range.
2: <laughs> awesome, I, I will. I'll shoot you shoot you an email after this for sure. You could
0: be one of our influencers.
2: <laughs> I could use it, my friend. I could use it.
0: Hey, this is great, guys. This is what this series is all about. You know, it's about different opinions, and uh, you know, really interested to hear both sides of the story on that. So, so that was brilliant. Thanks for that, both of you. Let's move on from influencers to creative content creation. Um, Carl, just to bring you back in, as I said in your ebook, you talk about prioritizing, engaging, creative. Could you just expand on that a little bit more and, and tell us what that means?
1: Yeah, I mean, Connor was touching on the importance of content. And, you know, we talk about that in the form of creative at move blank. And, you know, we often will talk about how, you know, people don't experience data. They experience content, you know, just because you know someone's, you know, a, a data point on that individual, you don't experience that. It's not until that turns into something, a message, creative, et cetera, that you really have a connection to it. And so the greater you have the ability to turn your data loyalty points, for example, into a visual to show you progress towards an achievement, a tier level a product reward something, you know, that doesn't really carry weight. And so the the challenge that we see with many marketers is you have lots of data, but you just don't have the content to go with it. And so trying to help find scalable ways to deliver more personalized experiences with content um, is really what we're setting out to do and, and what we've seen many of the, the great brands out there be able to do. And I think it's then through that content, that you can, you know, drive that authentic experience because you're connecting with them based on what you know about them and ideally what they've said they want to hear more about. And so, yeah, I think content just plays a, a key part in um, that personalized experience.
2: I've had experience with Kyle's company, Moveable Link, before. And I think what they do a really good job of is empowering brands to do more than just simply personalizing by, hi, Doug, hi, Connor, hi, Graham, but providing content relative to their stage in life, where they're located. You know, a great example is if you're in a warm weather climate and it's 75 degrees and sunny, it would be awesome to be able to send somebody a message saying, did you know your eyes can get a sunburn? you know, it's called photocaratesis. Do you have a pair of prescription sunglasses? Movable link technology allows you to do that. Now, like any great technology, you've got to use it for good, not evil. And you've got to find the point of diminishing returns where it's a creative versus drives you crazy. Any technology things are gonna break, I think brands are gonna have to look at entities like Movable Ink with a important lens, because again, with the opt out rules and the difficulty in getting first party data, the threshold for what is considered a relevant message, that bar has been raised incrementally in the last, I would say 24 months. So brands have to be on their A game to be serving up information that is more than just cookie cutter, but that really is almost intuitive. And using technologies like Movable Ink, hashtag not an ad, not an influencer, allows brands to do it. You just have to, again, create purpose with it. It can't be just thrown in and it's not a one-stop solve, but it is part of a bigger strategy, kind of what Connor was talking about, about community and authenticity, but also in a way that allows you as the brand owner to create a sense of advocacy for your brand in a meaningful, human, and sticky way.
1: Well, Doug, thanks for the plug. We do appreciate that. I agree. I think, you know, with any technology, you need the strategy, right? You mentioned that on you need a strategy for your influencers. And I think this all circles back to getting to the basics, right? What are you trying to accomplish and making sure that your strategy keeps you rooted in an authentic experience? So I think, you know, we're a piece of the puzzle here at Movable Inc, but it does have to ladder up to what that brand's wanting to do. And I do think in the last, you know, Year or two, the expectations have changed and shifted for what consumers are demanding. And in a period of crisis like we're talking about, you know that that bar only goes higher because the ability to switch to a different brand is even easier. And so um, that desire to win win that client for life is still still out there.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. And um, I'd just love to kind of, as as we're near the end of this conversation, talk about maybe some particular campaigns, particularly from Doug and Connor's point of view, just to find out how how your brands are are really effectively working. Doug, I noticed um, I was doing some research for this podcast. I was looking at some of your campaigns, like small moments, eyes on the prize. Could you give us a bit of insight into that and uh, the creative behind it and how successful they were?
2: So, you know, today we find ourselves as the number one healthcare services brand on Entrepreneur Magazine's top 500 franchise brands. We are the preferred brand for women, four years running Women's Choice Awards for optical retail. And our business is, is more successful now than it has ever been. That's the how it's done. What Small Moments really was about was how we got there. And it was understanding, really rooted in the insight that trust Trust is not earned through grand gestures. It's not earned through aggressive promotions. It is earned through a series of small, meaningful touch points in the experience that you have between your product, service, and your consumer. And so we really wanted to showcase in our messaging our belief system. You know, you could say it or you could show it. We wanted to show it. We wanted to demonstrate what quality of care means and how that is brought to life in real and meaningful ways. And we've done that, I think, well since 2016. Um, it's allowed us to really unlock insights like we talked about before about the U.S. Hispanic market. It's allowed us to create philanthropic initiatives like Eye on the Prize and ABC, which is powered by Pearl Vision and OneSite, which is really designed to unlock the potential of young kids that don't have access to vision acuity solutions. But I think most importantly, what it's allowed us to do is to connect with the community. You know, nobody cares for eyes more than Pearl. Why? because we believe that nothing should prevent you from getting the care that you need, full stop. And almost 80% of our patients live within nine miles or 15 kilometers of one of our eye care centers. So our sense of community is real by the actions that our consumers are taking. And the fact that we don't have stores, we call them eye care centers, and we don't have customers and we call them patients because a patient wants care, a customer wants service. A store is where you buy something and eye care center is where you go to be cared for. And um, small vernacular things that have really helped us win.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction to make. And thanks for taking us through those campaigns, because I've had a look at them, and they are really innovative. Connor, let's just turn back to you now. Um, if you could just give us your thoughts on content creation and any particular campaigns that you've been proud of?
3: Yeah, all of them. No, I'm kidding. When it comes to kind of Heath, I guess we run very much a campaign oriented business so what that well obviously the male skincare category bit of education because you guys probably won't know this um it's really really seasonal so a lot of people come into the market at key touch points um you know father's day is one of them of course christmas is one of them but you have these small touch points throughout the year what that means is that we're really we can be really efficient with kind of the campaigns that we build Uh, it means that we actually have five or six key campaigns a year and again kind of they're all built on insight so the first ever campaign that i brought to heath was uh, this campaign called What Men Want. Um, and as I mentioned earlier on, campaigns can either consolidate your brand and build your brand identity, or they can actually fragment it. And that's a trap that a lot of brands fall into unless you're laser, you have a laser clarity on kind of what your identity is. And again, they're built from insight. So if you look at you know, the male skincare market in the UK, we see that 72% of men actually buy a skincare product to feel good, not look good, very different to the female market. We also see post-pandemic that the number two highest value amongst male skincare buyers is actually their own well-being and the well-being of their family. And that's really, really important. So we kind of built this campaign tapping into what men actually want and how they can take care of themselves. And again, kind of reframing, although it's a very tenuous link, reframing skincare as a wellness moment as something which is more authentic. And I mean, you know, it was, it was a success because it was, it was transparent. And obviously it allows us to speak to consumers in an emotional way.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, no, that's brilliant. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what we've been talking about today, isn't it, is about authenticity. We've heard that word a lot. We've heard personalization, community, really understanding your customers. Carl, I'll just come back to you for one final word. I don't know if you uh, could try and summarize uh, what you've heard today and, and the key points for you.
1: Yeah, well, I love the both campaign examples from Doug and Connor. I think that just ties in to what we've talked about throughout this whole conversation, which is, you know, leveraging data, understanding your customers, driving authentic experiences at every touchpoint, right? So I agree, Doug talked about building trust, kind of consistently showing them what you mean. And I think that does happen consistently time over time. And that was kind of one of my points at the beginning, which is the way to navigate through a crisis like we're in is to build consistency with the brand so that it is something your customers can come to depend on, that you're not one way today and then and an entirely different way next week, but that they know what they can expect from the brand. They get that experience and that's how you're gonna build that customer loyalty over time.
0: Fascinating insight from all of you. Um, so thank you very much to all of my guests today, to, to Doug Zarkin, to Connor Wells and to Carl Schroeder. Really appreciate all your insights. To help CMOs on the path to success, SAP Amasis recently defined six key pillars powering cross-channel personalization, part of their Power Up Your Omni Channel marketing strategy series, which reveals the insights and strategies top brands use to deliver one-to-one experiences that build customer loyalty, increase lifetime value, and drive revenue. You can find out more at amasis.com forward slash power dash up dash your dash omni channel dash marketing dash strategy. So that's power up your omnichannel marketing strategy with a dash in between each word. We always want to hear what you think on the podcast. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do so on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. The links for these can be found at the top of the page at csuitepodcast.com. You can also catch up with all our previous shows and follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a positive rating and review. Finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website, or you can find me, Graham Barrett, and the C-Suite podcast on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.